Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. I have on the line the highly esteemed Robert H. Nelson. He is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and a professor of environmental policy in the School for Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He has been published in a wide variety of academic and popular journals and has a new book out, which I find to be quite a fascinating thesis on the degree to which environmentalism can be interpreted uh, and I think quite accurately, too, through the uh, lens of religiosity. Uh, so uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nelson, for taking the time to have a chat. I was wondering if you could lay out the, the general thesis of the book so that the audiences can get a good sense of where you're coming from. Uh, well, the the uh, basic idea of the book is, as you stated it, that environmentalism is a new kind of religion and uh, that it has uh, that that's uh, basically has a lot to do with the impact and the success of the environmental movement because it's meeting a demand for religion in modern life and people many people aren't finding it in other places uh, and so they're turning to environmentalism uh, part of its attraction is uh, for some of these people, they think of themselves as secular or even atheists, and um, they so they're turned off by the formal institutions of of the official churches and the formal theology. But they're looking for what they might they might say they're not religious, but they might say they're spiritual, and so they're looking for a source of I would say that's an illusion. They're looking for a source of religious understanding and energy and inspiration. And, uh, but instead of finding it in the historic churches of the West, they're finding it in a kind of a new church, environmentalism. So, for example, uh, when they are looking for uh, spiritual inspiration, uh, they go to the wilderness. And so the wilderness becomes a type of modern cathedral, and uh, I'm not the only person by any means to note that it's a cathedral, or uh, if they're attracted to the idea of saving all the species of the earth, they don't find that by reading about Noah and his ark, but instead uh, are interested in the Endangered Species Act and the idea of biodiversity. Or if they're concerned that human beings are sin, behaving in a sinful way and God is going to punish them. Um, and in the Bible, the typical punishments are things like uh, famines, floods, droughts, pestilence, natural disasters like uh, earthquakes. Instead of reading the Bible to get the story of human sinfulness and the divine punishments that we can expect they study global warming and uh, they uh, find things like uh, uh, they see that earth the, the future of the earth is threatened by uh, uh, the rising greenhouse gases and by climate change and so but what are the consequences of climate change I mean they're essentially biblical cataclysms, rising seas, famine, drought. In this case, the natural disasters are more likely to be hurricanes, but 
it's all a kind of secularization of biblical stories that the environmental movement uh, is offering. And certainly, if you look, go beyond many of the messages of the environmental movement and look at things like um, the, uh, you know, recycling, uh, there's also, you know, a whole set of religious rituals that uh, um, are part of the whole practice of environmental religion. And so uh, driving, you know, these are basically moral or ritualistic statements like driving an electric car uh, or, as I said, recycling or uh, changes in in behavior to limit consumption. Uh, And the idea that consumption is a threat to, excessive consumption especially, a threat to the human future. Uh, which is a very Calvinist way of looking at the world. So as you can see from the examples I'm giving you, it's not just the idea that environmentalism is a uh, religion, but it's actually in many ways draws its themes from Christian and Jewish religion and from the Bible, actually. But what it does is it presents them as in its context, which is divorced from all of that. And that's precisely the source of its attraction, because if you presented these themes in their old-fashioned ways, at least for the modern university student and a lot of other people who regard themselves as sophisticates who've moved beyond all those kinds of biblical ideas, uh, it's much more attractive. So that's the core of the book. Right. And while you were talking, I was thinking, uh, I'm not sure if you touch on this uh, on the book, but there are two other themes that I have always found similar in in sort of the great three, in a sense, tyrannical ideologies, as you say, particular kinds of of Calvinistic uh, Christianity, uh, Marxism and environmentalism. And they share these two traits, one of which is that there was a golden age in the past where everything was better. And of course, that's the Garden of Eden in religion. That's primitive societies right. in Marxism, and that's again primitive societies in uh, uh, in environmentalism, where there's this idea that you know the Native Americans lived in harmony with the earth and used all parts of the buffalo, and so there's this golden age of the past that people seem to be very confused about in terms of the historical reality. And uh, the second aspect is that there is a very tyrannical aspect in that there's this idea that if people exist in a state of freedom, that man is naturally sinful without a great deal of state power to restrain and constrain his greedy, materialistic, destructive impulses. And of course, for religion, that is uh, uh, the power of the church. Uh, for uh, for Marxism, it's the power of the state. And, and also for environmentalism, it is the power of the state. If we let people be free, they will rape and despoil Mother Earth and so on. So we need all of these rules and these laws and these fines and these prisons to restrain the natural evil of human behavior, which is not something I believe in at all. I'm very much a free market guy, but there is there does seem to be these strains between these three great tyrannies of the modern world. Well, I think uh, you're exactly right, although... Uh... I mean, again, it's a complicated thing. Uh, you know, Christianity and the idea of uh, of human beings as being gravely sinful and fallen and therefore requiring, uh, you know, force to restrain human evil. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, it goes way back. Property rights in Christianity were justified as 
necessary because of the depravity of man. And if the property was required to keep people from doing excessive damage to each other, which they would do if they were left outside a rule of either state or property or something like that, uh, that goes, yeah, it comes re- really from the idea of human beings as fallen, going back to the idea that in the Garden of Eden we were naturally innocent, and uh, but then we fell, and ever since we've been depraved, and which is certainly a fundamental uh, Christian message. And the thing that's interesting about it is it's not just Marx. It, I mean, really, the first person to do that was Rousseau, and uh, who this you know in the in the Enlightenment uh, there was a wide sense of optimism among many intellectuals, and what dis- distinguished Rousseau was his characterization of human existence in just the terms that you were talking about, which is we had been innocent and we had been happy, and we had fallen and we were now corrupted, and uh, so Rousseau tells that story. And uh, then Marx tells it in a new variation. But Marx is is even more attractive, though, for people who have a somewhat Christian orientation, because Marx says that well, it's true we're we're living in total corruption, which is due to the class struggle and the alienation, which has resulted from that class struggle. But it's due to end, and actually fairly soon in the apocalypse of the struggle, you know, the final struggle between the proletariat and the uh, capitalists. And what that when and that cataclysm, which is virtually out of the book of Revelations, uh, will usher in a new stage of history and a new earth. And, uh, and so it actually, in that sense, while it presents current human existences, depraved offers the hope of escape fairly soon again following in the christian uh in the christian tradition and yeah now environmentalism i mean in the book i talk about how uh, a number of environmentalists have they actually have a more precise time frame for all this they say that we were living in happy harmony with nature till about 10,000 years ago and so the fall of man really commenced about 10,000 years ago. Not so different, interestingly enough, from the biblical fall, <laughs> which was supposedly about 6,000 years ago. Right. And, but, it, but it commenced with the rise of agriculture, which then made possible the development of civilization, and which then alienated people in it from you know and so this the idea of alienation is marxist but it's also rousseau it's also calvin it's also christian and it's basically another term for fallen and depraved uh but anyway the this just growing depravity set in 10,000 years ago and it's been increasing to the present and you see that stated quite explicitly i mean you don't see that in the public pronouncements of our leading environmental uh, p- politicians but if if you read the literature of the environmental movement and the where the environmental movement is trying to articulate where it's coming from and not trying to be politically uh, in uh, you know avoid anything that they think would offend pub- the general american public you see this theme all the time so yeah i agree with you completely and it does lead to uh, it does lead to the idea uh, that we need force 
to control things. Which is a, which is a yeah. sorry to interrupt, but it's it's a mind-boggling idea, even if you accept the premises of say Marxism and environmentalism, that human beings are innately selfish and greedy and exploitive and so on, which I don't believe again, but but let's say you accept that. The idea that human beings are fallen and therefore we should give a group of highly limited, highly ambitious, highly avaricious and power-hungry human beings a monopoly on force to organize everybody else in the way that they see fit would seem to me entirely counter to the idea that human beings are well, fallen, right? Well, I mean, like I said, it goes back to Hobbes. I mean, these people, they might be avaricious, but, you know, it's like <laughs> maybe it's the religious equivalent of what... Winston Churchill supposedly said about uh, democracy, it's a terrible thing, but it's better than all the rest. And uh, that would be the way, anyway, that would be a classic way of thinking about it, that it's better to have a dictator, and even if the dictator, I mean, it will be in the self-interest of the dictator not to destroy all the people. And, yeah, like a farmer uh, with his livestock, he doesn't kill all the livestock. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. He doesn't kill all the livestock, and uh, actually, up until the point at which he slaughters them for meat, they don't have a might not be a great existence, but it's not so bad. And uh, so, dictators want to be able to tax their citizens and et cetera, et cetera. So they don't. I mean, they don't really have a reason to enslave or imprison them. In fact, that would be counterproductive to their own interests. Well, but you, and, and I, I would, again, I, I understand what you're saying as far as the Hobbesian nature red in tooth and claw. He has a very dystopian view of the origins of human society versus some of the other idealistic Garden of Eden approaches. But the, the problem I have with that is that, and I'm, I'm not saying you share the ideology, of course, but it's never stated openly, right? So, so environment, environmentalists don't say, well, human beings are greedy and avaricious and destructive, and the same thing is true of our political leaders. They are destructive and greedy and avaricious and evil like everybody else, but they're the best well, that we can do. They always seem to promote them as these glowing, you know, guardians of Mother Earth and so on. It depends. The environmental movement is, uh, look at, the, for example, nuclear power. Uh, that environmentalists would be closer to your page on that. They would say, look, you know, well, this is too dangerous a technology, and it puts concentrates power in the hands of a small number of people, and uh, so and science is too risky, uh, when, especially when it's science is being putting such incredible powers in the hands of current politicians, and given the you know the reliability of these politicians, it's better just not to have nuclear power at all. And uh, now you, I don't know where you would stand on that, but you would have to admit that it's not so different from what you were just saying. Well, but see, uh, but I, I mean, I, I'm I'm fine for. I think the free market should decide energy policy, not government regulations. But um, but even if we were to accept that, that that politicians are too fallible and science is too fallible, then of course you can't rely on science for global warming if you don't think it's it's reasonable for, you can't sort of pick and choose the science that you like or don't like. But even then you yeah. would say, if the politicians are too fallible to run nuclear power plants, then politicians are too fallible to uh, to enact uh, positive and, and altruistic and virtuous environmental policy, so we need to find some other solution and that would lead them more towards free market thinking, I think. Yeah, and of course there are, you know, some environmentalists who have gone down that path. Uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, 
I don't know if you follow them at all, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, but it's tr- the environmental movement is tricky in that regard. It's not, it's really actually in a lot of ways, it's anti-scientific management. And on the other hand, so, you know, there, there was the utopian ideas of, uh, that science would basically perfect our human existence and a symbol of that was a dam. And, uh, you know, people used to make pilgrimages to places like Hoover Dam. It was almost a form of worship of science and progress that human beings could control a huge river. And, uh, but actually it turned out that most of the dams that were ever built in the United States were boondoggles partly, you know, reflecting the frailties of the political situation. Um, but who has, you know, the, who has opposed those, the building of more dams, which is basically an assertion of central scientific authority of the, of the federal level and of the state. Actually, it's been environmentalists, and so they've been by far the most effective. Now, I'm, I'm only playing the devil's advocate here. I agree with a lot of things. Oh, sure, no, please, yeah. Are. But what I'm trying to do is to say that it's it's you maybe need to have a more, somewhat more nuanced position that there are significant elements of environmentalism that are actually anti-state, and uh, that actually one of the arguments that I make is that environmentalism, if of all of the religious origins of environmentalism, Protestantism is the most important. And um, that actually, you know, many of the ideas of environmentalism, if you actually start tracing them historically, you can trace them to, you know, through the history, through New England, through Emerson, through Jonathan Edwards, and even all the way back to Calvin. And uh, they so the pattern, though, they remain characteristically Protestant, but what you see is they're increasingly secularized even while having the underlying Protestant quality, for example, the rejection of consumption and and the idea that excessive consumption is a threat to your soul. Well, now it becomes resistance to growth and things like that. So, uh, but Protestantism had a very ambiguous relationship to authority. Uh, On the one hand, uh, you know, the the, the Puritans cut off the head of the English king when he tried to infringe on their religious freedom. Uh, But on the other hand, Protestants could be quite oppressive, and they burned their share of witches, too. Yeah, Protestantism uh, is like the America of the Christianity, I mean, in that it started as a revolt and, and quickly grew into a Leviathan. Yeah, but then the thing that was ma- interesting about Protestantism is that it's, it, it spawned continuous revolts, even against its own oppressive products. Right. <laughs> and which it's, I call Protestantism kind of free market religion. <laughs> and Catholicism is a sort of, you could call it monopoly religion. Right. And, uh, but it, one of the interesting things about environmentalism is that there are almost no important Catholics among the top leadership of the environmental movement historically. And there are actually very few Jewish and key Jewish environmentalists also, although there are a few like Robert Marshall, the founder of the wilderness society, as opposed to virtually none from the Catholic community. And, um, the, uh, but if you, on the other hand, if you start looking, it actually turns out that not only are, 
environmental, the top thinkers, John Muir, David Brower, all these people, I mean, the people who led the environmental movement and its development over the last hundred years, basically, they all have Calvinist backgrounds. And uh, so I, I've actually written uh, one of the chapters in this book that you mentioned is uh, called, or our sections is called Calvinism Minus God. And uh, where I argue that uh, basically environmentalism uh, is a very Calvinist way of thinking about things uh, and owes much of its inspiration to that. I mean, it's not surprising, uh, you know, the American history has been dominated in many times and places by Puritan thinking. And so basically environmentalism is in, in my interpretation anyway is a secularized and thus you know a lot of the environmentalists would be horrified to hear them described as newfound calvinists and that my thinking in that regard is not popular with the environmental movement uh, but actually, you know, Calvinism had a lot of the characteristics that you were talking about, uh, you know, and, but also the tensions that are found within environmentalism. On the one hand, it fiercely asserted religious independence, and in that sense, a lot of libertarianism was spawned from Calvinism. But on the other hand, it could provoke people, you know, to take up arms and <laughs> to become... You know, we ended we ended up in religious wars, and half the population of some German states died in the tensions. That uh, I mean, that wasn't just Calvinism, and but uh, so Calvinism has had a very checkered history. Also, uh, uh, in New England, you know, the Calvinists were driven out of England. They went to Massachusetts, but yet. New, Rhode Island had to be created as a place where religious freedom could actually exist when it, the Massachusetts Calvinists weren't willing to tolerate it. Right. I think the, sorry, so, sorry. Yeah, anyway, so what I'm saying is uh, um, that, so uh, I, I described this, I've been, this is not something that I wrote about as much in the book. I mean, of course, I wrote the book about a year or two ago when it came out here just in the last few months. But, I mean, this phenomenon of finding religion in what seemingly are non-religious places, uh, I mean, I've been thinking even more about it recently. In fact, I've been writing something just now about Avatar. And the fact that Avatar is filled with religious messages. Yes. And um, the uh, and the, it's not a clear-cut theology. I mean, it's and some of the messages might even be in conflict a bit with one another. But it's all they're very biblical and very Christian and Jewish. I mean, the God Ewa. I mean, I don't know what Cameron was trying to do. I mean, he clearly was telling somebody that he was writing a you know he was writing about a Jewish Christian God by virtually adopting the same name. But this Star Wars is the same way. Or if you go back to you know the Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis, he wrote a lot of theology, but his Tales of Narnia had a lot more impact in spreading Christianity, which without saying it was Christianity. So in a way, uh, what I'm, again, going back to what I said in my opening comments, 
It's the idea that, unlike what a lot of people, you know, say they say, oh, environmentalism, it's based on Buddhism or some kind of pantheistic paganism or something. Actually, it's based on Christianity, and but it's offering Christianity in a form where people don't recognize it as such, which paradoxically makes it much more attractive to them. Right, yeah, people think that uh, if, if you destroy the form of a meme or, or a thought pattern, that that thought pattern then vanishes. Like, so when, yeah, but, but it no, doesn't, right. it just but comes to another, it just takes, takes another form. It finds another outlet. Right. And one of the things in, that's... In environmentalism, I mean, the movies, things like Avatar and Star Wars, or, uh, you know, or novels, uh, like Narnia and Lord of the Rings are outlets for that. But the one, the thing that's remarkable about environmentalism is that it's not a fictional portrayal. And, uh, it's a, it's basically a world system offered as real. And, but it's similar in the sense that it's a sort of secularized Christianity or Jewish religion, if you, I mean, obviously the two are blended together in ways that you could never separate. And it, it's also, uh, I find it striking um, that they, there's also an immunity to, to evidence uh, that you find uh, in ideologies where the external manifestation is serving, I think, a deeper psychological need. So, um, for instance, uh, there are still Marxists, despite the obvious catastrophes of 20th century and 19th yeah, century mean, but... Marxism. And in the environmental movement, uh, just as in the in the religious movement uh, in Mormonism, I don't know how many end of the world scenarios there were that that came and went without any any great deal of fuss. Right. I mean, there is Paul Ehrlich and famine and yeah, yeah. I mean, we got in 1980. The, uh, it was obvious that it was a ludicrous prediction. Right, but it doesn't but change people's thinking. Right? For it. He, in fact, he keeps on making. Right. So no matter how many times the prophecies fail, a new prophecy pops up, which means you know it's not empirical. It's serving some deeper need that I, I think you're right comes directly out of a more um, uh, religious tradition within the West, because you would think well, Marxism. It, Marxism has exactly the same explanation. I mean, Marxism is a Christian heresy, or, or you know, or, or if you want to call it that. I mean, basically, what's the story of? We were living in happy harmony and primitive innocence, and we were corrupted by economics, you know, by the by greed and the desire for more which set off the class struggle, which created alienation, which is just another Marxist term for fallenness and depravity. Yeah, or separateness from God, and, right? Yeah, separation from God, exactly. And, but in, and, uh, and the new God in Marxism is economics and economic history, which controls everything. Everything is, con is as controlled by economic history as in a Christian view, God controls the f events of the world. And uh, even ideas in your mind, and according to Marx, are basically just epiphenomena or false consciousness of underlying economic realities. And where does it all lead, though? It all leads to a, gl a glorious ending. Well, and, and the ending, and, uh, the ending in religion and environmental environmentalism and in Marxism is much like the origins is very ill-defined. I mean, it's very hard to find. Uh, right. A Marxist who will talk about what happens after the state withers away, and it's very hard to right, find. Right, but an they think it's wonderful. Yeah, but they—it's like it's like a—it's like a, basically a Christian heaven. Right, but but there's no details and, to it. Right, there's lots of details about the depravity of the present, but there's almost yeah. no details about the glories of the future. But we don't know even what a Christian heaven is. Right, right. 
And in fact, I've heard some people argue that the, a lot of the depictions of heaven would be boring. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, but anyway, uh, but you know, that's another thing about environmentalism, though. It's not nearly as clear cut about its prediction of where things are going to end up as Marxism was. You know, Marxism was definitive and it was a wonderful ending. Uh, but environmentalism is very, uh, they're a bit tortured. Uh, a lot of environmentalists actually are rather despairing about the future prospects. And there is a, there's even an element of environmentalism which really says that the ideal ending would be essentially human suicide. Well, it's the uh, radical that, depopulation that also falls in line with Calvinism who believe that only a small percentage of human beings are savable, and the same thing occurs in radical environmentalism where significant depopulation is considered the only way forward. Well, there's that, and, uh, but, you know, if you take, if you take, let's say you go back to what I said, Calvinism minus God, and if, but if you take God out of Calvinism, all you're left with is corrupt and depraved and evil creatures that go on forever. And so you, you, in Calvinism, to make it work, you have to have God. And if you don't have God, you might as well just, you know, the best thing would be for human beings to die off and disappear from the earth and let nature, you know, take its course. Uh, and, you know, there are some, I mean, David, some of the leading environmentalists have called humans, they call them the cancer of the earth right, right. or the AIDS of the right. earth. You know, we're we're basically spreading around the earth like a cancer that's out of control, it's growth out of control. Right. I mean, that's the imagery. And so, I mean, if you take that only one step further, now they don't, but it's obvious what the next step would be, which is, look, what, what's the best thing you could have if you have cancer? Well, for the cancer to disappear, right? right? And uh, the uh, and so that's implicit actually in the worldview of uh, non-trivial part of the you know I mean they don't draw it to the conclusion that I just did right. because it's too they would be awkward and they would in a way it would force them to confront tensions in environmental thinking that are difficult to deal with. And so they obviously draw back before pushing it to the point that I just went to. And uh, but the point is that the, that the that the conclusion I reached is entirely logical if you start from the same premises. Right. And um, but again, you know, there are you not to be too critical. I mean, in Christianity and in virtually all religions, there are none of them are perfectly developed logically and rationally. They all have issues or things that are hard to deal with and so forth, or points that theologians have fought about for centuries and never resolved adequately. Now, I was wondering so, if I'd just like to get your thoughts. Um, uh, I don't want to take up your entire uh, particularly uh, Easter Well, you can say I like to talk, but, so uh, it's okay. I'm really, uh, I've often been struck by the degree to which, I mean, if Nietzsche were writing today, he would have, I believe, an absolute haymaking field day with environmentalism because of its similarities to Christianity and Marxism in that right. there is this, uh, you know, the rich are the devils and, and uh, the corporations are the devils and the state is like Jesus or God who will save us and the poor are the virtuous. It's the slave morality and the resentment of success 
that Nietzsche, I think, described so perfectly in his philosophy, or it's hard to say he's a philosopher. Yeah, although I don't think environmentalism is that they definitely don't like corporations and private profit and things like that. I don't think it's as favorable towards the poor as you suggested. Well, sorry, let, let me let me uh, sort of explain. There, 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 there have been some environmentalists who said, you know, that again, they don't say this too publicly, but it was implicit that well, okay, AIDS was a good thing in Africa. And uh, that's hardly, uh, you know, a pro-poor point of view. Well, but in terms of the ideal uh, of where we were pre-10,000 years ago or where we would be in some yeah, ideal future. Yeah, it's not it's, poor, it's, though. It's pr in living in primitive innocence is a better way to put it. <laughs> well, potato, potato. And, right? Now, you're saying, well, yeah, in the real world, that would be poor. But that's not what they're thinking of. Uh, I mean, they're thinking of it in terms of images more like heaven. And, uh, you know, natural, the, all the corruptions of human civilization would be gone. And uh, the whole, the, even the distinction between rich and poor would be gone because we would all be, you know, equal in our, you know, in our tribal <laughs> societies. And none of them would be rich and all would, there would be uh, a natural harmony among human beings. And that's, of course, I would put, the, it, I would put it that well, way. The lion lies down with the lamb and the, the, the classless society of the Marxists and the egalitarian society. Again, I, I, feel, I see what you're saying. It is a very common thread throughout these three, uh, I guess, two offshoots of one core religious, uh, religious uh, approach to life. Right. And the other thing that I should say is that I've been and we have been talking about environmentalism uh, as though it's one thing. But I mean, it is one thing, but it's no, in a sense, it's no more one thing than, let's say, Christianity. Right. And uh, so you have lots of different forms of environmental thinking. Now, they're united by a lot of core ideas, just like Christianity. But on the other hand, there's still a great deal of difference among some of them, too. So, And just like Christianity can, on the one hand, be the source of human freedom, but on the other hand, the source of human oppression, uh, you can have similar kinds of things happening in, you know, within the environmental um, uh, terrain. No, and I think that's, that's an excellent point. Uh, if environmentalism were one thing, then it would, not, can, can, it would not be a candidate for an offshoot of religiosity, because religiosity is, I mean, sometimes it feels like with, with sort of, in, in a sense, different emphasis or cherry-picking on the Bible, that every time you meet a religious person, you're meeting a kind of new religion. Uh, so if it, if it didn't have that multiplicity, it wouldn't be a candidate to be an offshoot of religiosity, because religiosity certainly has that, that multiplicity. Right. And, uh, but I would say, I mean, what I've tried to do in some of my other writing is, t I mean, as I say, we're also dealing with a multiplicity of what you might call secular religions, but which all, you know, basically drew on, in a way, the Christian heritage of the West. Even, uh, even uh, National Socialism in Germany, you know, had a lot of Christian elements in it. And uh, it was, a, you know, so, and, and it appealed to those. Uh, I mean, the, the most obvious, uh, you know, was the thousand-year Third Reich. I mean, it was the Nazi millennium. And uh, so there were, you know, so what you find, and this is the, um, the broader picture that I'm presenting, is that it, there's been a whole, there's been a turn in, let's say, in the, you know, in the last two or three hundred years away from, at least among many elites, um, 
Christian and Jewish historic representations in believing in the Bible as literal truth and things like that. But, and, but yet these same things have reappeared in a host of secular religions, of which environmentalism is about the most, it's the most recent of the really important ones. And, uh, and, it, and it also draws more heavily on Protestant religious antecedents, whereas I would argue that socialism, and I actually argued this quite some time ago in a book, socialism is much more compatible with Roman Catholic Christian antecedents. I mean, in fact, there was, I called environmentalism Calvinism minus God. I mean, I think it was uh, Thomas Huxley who called socialism Catholicism minus God. And um, the, uh, so you can actually trace, and you have, if, you, if you look out more broadly at the whole domain of secular religion, you can trace branches of Christianity evolving into particular forms of secular religion, yeah. and then struggling amongst themselves in the way that those branches of, secu- of traditional religion fought three or four hundred or five hundred years ago, and now we find their, you know, their heirs as secular religions still fighting with each other. Right. Well, there's always been a class of intellectuals and powerful communicators, in my view, who are well paid by the state or by the secular rulers to frighten the living hell out of the average citizen. And if, uh, you know, the rise of Marxism to me was, well, people are no longer as afraid of hell uh, or demons anymore uh, because of the Enlightenment. And so now we need to invent a predatory ruling class. And then when Marxism begins to fall, you need to invent the Cold War. When the Cold War begins to fall, you need to invent environmentalism because you always have to have people having the living crap scared out of them so that they will surrender uh, rights and uh, and money uh, and freedom to those in power. Because if we're not afraid of something, we really don't need rulers to protect us. And so... Well, you might, you might not agree with me on this, but I put the war on terror in the same category. I would completely agree with you with that now. And, and it's, it's always, when you look at it, it is always enemies that have been invented by the very class that claims to protect you from them, because... Uh, it, well, and the point is that once they become established in power, I mean, that is how they stay in their positions. So, I mean, we have the Department of Homeland Security, which we're spending $40 billion a year on, to possibly virtually no practical benefit, and yet they're not going to go away easily. Well, it's a huge practical benefit to those receiving the $40 billion. That's why we Yeah, exactly. That's the practical benefit. Right. And But yeah, but what have they done? They've basically mastered the art of terrorizing the American public. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and uh, as a way of making sure that they do never go away. Now, yeah. sorry, you, I just wanted to f- finish with one last point, because you've written quite a lot about uh, global warming, and I, th- I think right. with, with a great degree of prescience, because I think it's, it's, it's sort of, I don't want to be overly optimistic, or maybe this is overly pessimistic, but um, it seems that it is a narrative that is showing enough credibility cracks that it may need to be replaced. With, with something else, just as the war on terror is showing enough credibility cracks that it may need to... Do you have any idea whether you think these things might deflate and what might take their place as the next boogeyman? Well, yeah, I mean, my view on global warming and climate change, just to, I mean, to state it very briefly, is that it's 
not a great threat to human beings, especially the rich part of the human beings. And even the poor part, it's not as much of a threat as often advertised. I do think that there's some reasonable chance that global warming will occur. I mean, I think we don't have a real, any real definitive knowledge of whether it's a degree or two or four or five degrees. Probably a lot of people that I would respect say, My, there's a good chance it'll only be a degree or two. Um, but even a degree or two is, gonna, is going to change a lot of ecologies around the world. And so my view is that, the, that, again, it becomes more of a religious than a scientific question. If we start remaking the Earth's atmosphere and the world's ecological systems, it puts us in the position of playing God with the Earth. Now, this is not a scientific matter at all. Uh, but if you look at, as I said, if you look at what environmentalism says is going to happen, it's basically biblical. It's the exact same punishments that in the Bible that are visited on the Jews in Deuteronomy and other places who challenge God's authority. It's, you know, rising seas, drought, famine, and so forth. So again, it's almost a biblical parallel now. But I, I mean, I have to admit that I'm not entirely enthusiastic about human beings playing God with the earth. And uh, I mean, if so, if you could, in my ideal world, uh, it wouldn't happen. But yeah, then, then you say, well, okay, we're, what are you going to do? And yeah, it, ra- it raises the possibility that to try to control it, you could get all kinds of oppressive state and other uses of force and so forth. So I see it as uh, I, I, but I do think, Going back to your earlier comment, the kind of sense that there's a there's an obvious answer, and that any right-thinking intellectual much ought to agree upon it. And uh, if you don't, you must be some kind of uh, uh, out of touch person. I think that is has been eroded. That's the w- the way of thinking about it that way. That there is a consensus, and everybody has to think the same thing. That has been eroded significantly in the last five months. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I, but I don't think that the, that there has been a, well, so what's been, what's been eroded is this incredible, powerful groupthink that was dominating everything, which was ultimately religious in character. And that has tend, started to come apart. And that means that people people will need a new absolutism now because these kinds of personalities are black and white. Uh, They, they don't tolerate ambiguity very well. That would be uh, I mean, that's sort of a pessimistic view, which is that no matter what happens, whether it's one thing or another, we're just going to go from one absolute, one false absolute to another false absolute. Well, that's why I run a philosophy show, so I can give people tolerance for ambiguities and complexities. I, I see. Okay. Uh, well, uh, good luck. <laughs> well, you know, keep your fingers crossed. Now, um, yeah, well, sorry, uh, please go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt your thought. No, no, no. Well, I was going to put in a promotion. Please, that's tell what I was about to offer you. Yes. Go and read my book. Or actually, there's there's multiple books. The first one, where I traced the connection between secular religion and Christianity, was in 1991. It was called "Reaching for Heaven on Earth: The Theological Meaning of Economics." And then I had another one in 2001, which is called Economics as Religion, from Samuelson to Chicago and beyond. So in this latest book that we've been, or that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, I'll mention it myself again in case anybody is interested. It's called The New Holy Wars, 
economic religion versus environmental religion in contemporary America. I mean, it's somewhat of a sequel to not only those two books, but I've been writing on this subject in magazines and journals and some of them prominent and some of them obscure. I actually wrote a, a series of uh, columns for Forbes magazine along these lines in the, in the 1990s. And so those got a lot of play, but they didn't influence the, you know, the dominant uh, uh, sources of opinion. But the, um, I also published a lot of them in rather obscure places. So. Now, I also would like to give you the opportunity just before we wind up, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has been a really enjoyable conversation for me. Uh, I would like to give you the opportunity to uh, to plug uh, the Independent, which I think is a is a great great uh, resource for people who are interested in, uh, I guess, more libertarian and certainly not mainstream uh, views on contemporary events. Yeah, well, the Independent. I mean, I'm a senior fellow at the Independent Institute. It's uh, in Oakland, and uh, it's been around. I'm not sure the exact founding, but twenty or thirty years anyway. And uh, it's sort of. Uh, I mean, it's basically a kind of a libertarian, although it's been these issues of religion and the interaction of religion and uh, secular debate have become a new area of interest. And so uh, it's actually uh, a new part of the agenda of the Independent Institute. And so they're, for example, they are um, a... uh, publishing my book it's actually it's the book is published by Penn State Press uh but it's in cooperation with the Independent Institute and it reflects a some you know a a, a redirection of, of its uh not a redirection but an addition to its historical more economic and libertarian orientation to thinking about religion and the issues of religion and libertarian thought uh, and so I'm, you know, I've, uh, I, I would encourage anybody who's interested in think, thinking about these questions to visit their website. And uh, they also do a lot of other, um, other pieces about foreign policy and the regular regulation and the impacts of regulation and so forth. And uh, what's the website? I, I was going to, I think I remember it, but I'm not sure. So if you could, do you remember the website for the Independent? Uh, if you just Google the Independent Institute, it would come right. Yeah, it's that either independent.org or something like that. I'm sorry, I should have written it down. Yeah, I, I don't actually. I'm, I'm afraid. It's, that a, I'm I got a, it's independent. I'm a Googler. I don't. I just Google the name, and it'll be the first thing that'll come yeah, up. Independent.org, and you can sign up for the newsletter there. And I would strongly, strongly urge people who are trying to bring the light of reason and evidence to the world, and as those of us who try regularly to do that, we know that we get into that Socratic cheese grater where we're kind of putting our foreheads up into this cheese grater of people's irrational resistance to reason and evidence. I don't think that you can understand the modern world, however scoured it seems to be of religion in certain areas, you cannot understand the modern world without a deep study of religious history and religious thinking. Well, and so. that's my theme is that, yeah, if you try to just think about rational argument without putting it in the context of religion and religious issues and faith, but to recognize that religion hasn't gone away at all, really. It's just reappeared in new forms, which sometimes are based, you know, on the idea that they're not religions, which is what makes them particularly attractive as new religions, because for some people, religion is in uh, disrepute. You know, Michael, you know, I'm sure you know Michael Crichton. Oh, yeah. 
he he described, and unfortunately he died a year or two ago, but he described environmentalism as religion for urban atheists. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a, it's something that people have to really understand, that the church may crumble, the gods live on in new forms. And that's something that you really can't, uh, you can't process the modern world without that. And of course, a lot of people uh, who are not religious will look at religion as a sort of semi-medieval superstition that we've outgrown. But uh, it doesn't, if that's the case, it doesn't explain why so many irrational uh, beliefs persist so dogmatically into the modern world. So I really do applaud your, your work in tying together uh, some of the contemporary secular movements with the history of religiosity. I think that it's essential for people who want to have a real effect in the world to understand how the modern superstitions, in a sense, are outgrowths of, of earlier religiosity. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I and I'll, I'll put it's a link. Been, it's been an enjoyable conversation. As you can see, I, uh, I like to talk about these things. So, And I thank you for inviting me uh, to be on your program. I appreciate it. And I will put a link to your books and the website uh, on the video. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Robert. Okay, great. Thanks bye -bye. a lot. Bye-bye.